You're listening to Summit Podcasts, where you'll find sermon audio, weekly discussions of the message, the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and much, much more. Subscribe today at summitpodcast.church and share this episode with your friends. Summit Church, every life made different. Hey, it's great to see all of you. Thank you for joining us. If you're watching online or maybe you're listening to this podcast later, I'm grateful. Thanks for joining us for Leadership Night here at Summit Church. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, For those of you that are watching online, if you're new to Leadership Night, basically what we do is we will take a leadership topic or principle, we'll unpack it, walk through it together for 25 or 30 minutes, and then we'll just take some time to talk and apply it together and talk about what does that look like and uh, maybe ask some questions and uh, dialogue within the room. And so if you're watching online and you're interested, make sure that um, you ask some questions, post those in the comments, and uh, we'll take a look at that, and hopefully we can get to some of those as well. And I do want to encourage you guys that are here. Um, these podcasts are available if you search. Michael, you might need to help me with this. If you search on iTunes or uh, what is it called? Some, uh, Apple Podcasts, if you search Apple Podcasts or Spotify, summitpodcast.church is like a clearinghouse for all of our podcasts, whether it's the She Is Community podcast, the Back 40 Leadership podcast that we do for pastors and leaders, our sermon podcasts, or um, these Leadership Night podcasts. All those can be found there. But if you search on those major platforms, Summit PA Church, all one word, you should pull it right up. And so if you ever wanna go back and listen, or maybe there's a podcast you wanna share with a friend, uh, you can find those there. And if you've got questions about that, you can email Michael Bond from our church website and he'll get you squared away. So uh, I do appreciate you guys joining us. Hey, let me pray over our time together and then we'll jump in. God, we honor you and we're grateful that uh, each person that's here and each person that's watching or listening to this right now, God, you have given them leadership potential and leadership capacity. And I'm grateful that I believe these people are here and these people are listening in order to grow their capacity and to grow their leadership. And I pray that you would stretch us and mold us and help us become the leaders you want us to be. And, and I pray that ultimately it's gonna bring you glory as we lead well, whether it's in our homes, in our community, in our workplaces, uh, no matter where it may be, as we lead well, we're gonna bring you glory. So God, minister in our time together, be glorified through it. In Christ's name, amen. So just for the record, um, I'm not fishing, but today is my birthday. And we're not singing happy birthday. I don't need that. I'm 46. I've, I've, been, I've had so many birthdays that now they're devalued. It's like U.S. currency. When you have so much, it doesn't, wasn't worth very much. And so I've had enough birthdays that now my birthday is not worth as much as it used to be. So, um, so I want to say if you've texted and I haven't responded or you've messaged me or whatever it might be, thank you for that. Um, and I will respond eventually, I promise. So thank you guys. And it's 46. So 46 sounds a lot younger now than it did when I was like 15. Uh, so, so tonight I want to, I want to share, um, I actually, I told somebody earlier, this is a rerun from 2020. Um, I was looking back through some old leadership night, um, talks that we've done. And this was from January of 2020. Does anybody remember January of 2020? Just generally speaking, a world looked a lot different. It was a much more innocent world in January of 2020. And on January 8th, 2020, I shared a leadership night 
uh, topic with all of you, and some of you may have been there. Uh, a lot of you probably were not. Um, but we talked about leading in crisis, which was appropriate because literally 60 days from then, um, our world would be in crisis. And, um, and so I just thought, you know what, this is appropriate because most of us um, aren't accustomed to leading through a global crisis. But the reality is every leader, no matter where you're at, um, whether it's in your personal life, in your professional life, you will have a crisis. And your leadership cannot stop just because you're going through hard times. You have to continue to lead. Um, you have to lead in your home. The needs in your home don't evaporate, don't disappear simply because you've got a crisis in your life. You still have to lead in your home. Uh, your business does not grind to a halt because you've got a crisis for the most part. So you have to learn how to lead in crisis because uh, that is the nature of leadership. Um, so many times in leadership, the, the climate that we're leading in is crisis. Now, it might not be a crisis for everyone, but, um, but I was telling somebody earlier the truth is, um, if you're dealing with a crisis, it doesn't matter what other people think about that crisis. It's still a crisis for you. And so what we need to do is understand that those things are common. They're going to come and go. And, uh, and we need to figure out what does it look like for us to walk through that in a healthy way, in a way that on the other side of it, we're in a better position. Our organizations, our families, whatever it is we're leading are in a better place. And if you're in a position to lead staff or maybe volunteers, um, the reason you have staff and volunteers are to solve problems. Um, our staff here at Summit, uh, they are hired to solve problems specifically. We want them in roles to solve problems. And if they are um, un unable to lead in crisis and solve problems in crisis, then they're probably not gonna be a very good leader for us. So we have to help them learn how to manage even in difficult situations. And if they're causing more problems than they're solving, then they definitely should not be part of our team. And I would say the same thing for your teams, no matter who you lead, if they're causing more problems than they're solving, then they're probably not the right fit for your team. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter how much, crisis, uh, how much crisis you fix, if you cause the crisis, uh, yeah, that's a problem. So don't cause your own crisis. So let me just walk through this. Um, a lot of times, especially on the heels of COVID, when we think about crisis, we think about something like that. But a crisis might be for you, a crisis might be a uh, diagnosis from the doctor. Um, thankfully, uh, last week I was in Oklahoma for a few days and it was right on um, like my brother-in-law got some really bad test results. And uh, so I was able to be there. Thankfully, I was already had it scheduled. I was able to be there um, as they were kind of waiting for some other things to develop. And thankfully we heard today, he's fine. Like there are no issues, everything's clear. Um, but that's a crisis. And um, it doesn't feel like it's global in scale. It's, it's individualized, but it's still a big deal. And so crisis comes in Edison, a lot of different ways, different forms. So let me, let me just mention three things to you. Um, crisis comes because of three things. Number one, outside forces. So outside forces can cause a crisis in our lives. Uh, in a business, it might be a shift in the marketplace. So a lot of a lot of businesses faced a crisis after COVID because now their business model had to change because people's 
habits changed. Um, have you noticed how many fast food places are getting rid of interior seating? Uh, maybe not entirely, but they are limiting it or they're re because they know people aren't coming into the restaurant to eat like they used to. Um, they're beefing up their, um, their automated um, ordering spots because, um, well, wages have gone up. They can, you know, so the market has shifted. And if you're still expecting everybody to come into your restaurant and sit in your restaurant and eat, and you've got a full staff, you're probably falling behind uh, from a market perspective. So there's outside forces that are causing you to have to change. And it's, it's a crisis for many companies. Um, we look at historic companies like Kodak um, that you thought, these people are gonna be around forever, right? They were ubiquitous for years and years and years. And some of you are around my age and you'll appreciate this, shopping malls. I remember going to shopping malls when I was a teenager and it was like, this is the greatest thing ever. All the things I like and all the food I like and my friends. And now shopping malls are ghost towns. There is nothing in shopping malls anymore. Um, we've talked about this in the past, <clears throat> but if you look at the Fortune 500 list from 1955, 90% of those Fortune 500 companies are no longer Fortune 500 companies. In fact, many of them are no longer in business. They were once big and powerful and strong, but there was some sort of outside force that shifted the marketplace. So market shifts, uh, cultural shifts, culture changes. Um, think about how, how different our culture is today than where it was 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. It's shocking how different our world is. And this is not a commentary on what should have changed or shouldn't have changed. But quite frankly, if companies and uh, churches have not shifted at all with those cultures, not that we water down the gospel as a church or anything like that, but if we have not shifted, if we're still doing things the same way today as we were 50 years ago, we're probably in trouble because the culture has shifted. Um, families look dramatically different today than they did 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, I mean, even you know, for a few years, I worked as a, as a corporate recruiter and I was shocked how often in that environment I would hear people say, hey, we're holding off till after the election because they understood the culture should, could shift. And if the culture shifts, we wanna be in a position to respond. Uh, and that's a simple thing, but they understood that, hey, um, we don't wanna be overstaffed if the culture shifts. And so we wanna be careful about this. Um, consumers and clients, they change. Um, that can cause a crisis. Like I said earlier with fast food joints, um, if they're not paying attention, those outside forces can cause a crisis. The second thing is inside forces. These would be like stakeholders, uh, shareholders, um, maybe staff, or in, in the case of many churches, ours uh, especially, but volunteers. Um, those inside forces shifts in behavior, in values, whatever it is, can dramatically shift the culture of an organization, can dramatically shift uh, whether an organization is in crisis or not. Thankfully, as a church, we do pretty well for the most part as far as our dream team or volunteers go. But I talk to churches all the time that are in a much worse spot than we are. And you could say they're in crisis because there's things they can't do because they don't have the, the labor force, if I can say it that way, to do it. And so um, the internal stakeholders, shareholders, staff, volunteers, 
they can cause a crisis, intentionally or unintentionally. Um, I've told pastors of smaller churches, uh, they, they will tell me all the time, man, I wish I, wish I had a staff. And, and I will tell them, you only wish you had the right staff because we've got a great staff. And, and honestly, I, we don't have any staff on our team that causes me to have a crisis in my heart or mind or anything like that. Um, but we've had some wrong staff members um, here, but also in my last church, and they can cause the most damage to our church. In your organization, if you've got the wrong people on your team in the wrong seats, uh, they can cause an incredible amount of damage and they can be responsible for a crisis in your organization. And so it's important to understand who those people are and the responsibilities they have and their character. Um, and so understand those inside forces. They can cause a crisis. And the third thing is uh, that, that can cause a crisis is a failure of the leader. Um, and this could be a performance failure. And we've seen this over and over and over. Large corporations, they bring someone in and they're just the, the wrong fit and the company goes the wrong direction and they remove this CEO and they bring in another CEO to try to right the ship. Uh, so performance can cause this, but behavior can cause it as well. So it might be a moral failure. And we make a lot about moral failures within churches, which rightly so we should. But even in secular organizations, non-Christian organizations, if the person in charge of the company or of the department or of the um, whatever it might be, if they are morally um, compromised, it's going to cause issues all the way down the line. And so, I mean, think about it even in a home. Um, if, if a dad is morally compromised, if he's got questionable morals, for, forget about Christian or unbeliever, whatever it is, if, if they're just morally questionable, it's going to cause problems in the organization. It can never be as healthy as you would like it to be. And so we've got to be careful about our own hearts as leaders, where we're at, because that's something, uh, that's something I am constantly aware of, that the decisions I make as the leader of this church don't just have implications for me and don't just have implications for my family, but it has implications for every person who attends our church, every person who watches online, every person who calls our church home, whether they actually attend here regularly or not. Uh, my decisions and my behavior impacts all of them. And so, um, so I, I have to take that very seriously. We have to understand that's a part of it. I can cause a crisis to come to organization if I'm not careful. So those, those are the three primary places where crisis comes from or, or why they happen. So let me just talk about six principles of leading through crisis. I'm gonna blow through these pretty quickly too. We won't take a lot of time here, but we'll circle back uh, here in just a few minutes and talk through some of these together. So the first thing is this, um, when crisis comes, and it's not if, it's when, it's going to come. So when crisis comes, don't let emotion take over. And it's easy to let emotion take over. And, and literally any crisis you can imagine, it's easy to let emotion take over. Um, think about, uh, well, let's go back to COVID. That's the easy one. Um, a lot of people were driven by fear during COVID. A lot of organizations, a lot of leaders, they were driven by fear. What's gonna happen? What is this gonna look like? And it, their emotions took over. Um, so one of the ways we combat that is to focus on the facts. Focus on what do we actually know? What are the things we know for sure? Uh, let's not speculate, let's not guess, let's not dream, let's not hope, but let's, let's focus on what do we actually know about what's going on? Um, the second question 
that's important, and this is not just for churches. This is for families. This is for non-religious organizations. Uh, who do we need to care for? Like, okay, we're in a crisis. There's things we need to do. But if people are important in your organization, you need to ask yourself, who is it we need to care for? What do they need from us? What do we need to be doing to help them navigate this crisis? Um, because that's the difference to me, that's the difference between a good organization and a great organization. A good organization is gonna be successful. Um, but a great organization is gonna have healthy people and successful people. So the organization doesn't just win, but the people in the organization are winning as well. Um, and so the difference in those two things are really focus. Who are you focusing on? What are you focusing on? So who do you need to care for? The third thing that I would ask is um, what needs to happen first? What's the priority? A lot of times we focus on how do we get out of this mess, but we don't think about it systematically and go, well, where do we start? Um, and so I think you have to ask the question, where do we begin? How do, what do we need to do first? and prioritize behavior. Uh, and the fourth thing under focus on the facts would be this, um, refuse to lose sight of the big picture because of the crisis. A lot of times in crisis, what we do is we focus on survival. How do I get out of this crisis? And we lose sight on the big picture, on the horizon. Where do we wanna be as an organization? And we just try to get through this moment. Um, and again, this comes back to this emotion taking over. We just gotta get through this. And the emotion isn't just fear, it can be pride. Um, maybe you've got, had a personal attack. Somebody has attacked your character, somebody has attacked, whatever it is, and your pride can lead you to make decisions that you should not be making um, because, well, I'll show them. Oh, well, I'll prove to you. Um, might be anger um, that's tied together with that. Might be fear, but there's lots of different emotions that can drive us when we're leading in crisis. Um, and here's the thing I would encourage you into. Uh, you will never, ever experience crisis that's fear-free. Every time you have crisis, you're gonna experience fear. So even a person of faith, even a person who loves Jesus very much is gonna experience fear in the face of crisis. Because um, maybe there's a crisis with one of your children. Uh, there's something going on in their lives. They're making decisions that are contrary to the way you've raised them and it's impossible not to have some fear with what's gonna happen, what's gonna develop, what's gonna, right? Um, maybe it's your company. Hey, these market trends have shifted. I might have to lay people off. Oh, what's gonna happen? And there's this fear. And so if we understand fear is a natural part of crisis, um, but it also doesn't have to dominate us, it'll help us navigate it better when we come to it. So don't let emotion take over. The second thing is this. Um, <laughs> This is really hard to do, but do not assess blame. When crisis comes, especially if it's an internal crisis, it's easy to go, well, whose fault is this? We should have been ready for this. Who wasn't, who didn't do their job? Who didn't prepare? Um, because, oh gosh, this is so bad for an, for an organization because then it creates a climate of fear within the organization. It doesn't create a climate of honesty and transparency. And that's what you want. You want a, a, a climate, you want a, a culture of safety so that when people mess up, they can go, I, that was me, I, I own that. But if people are afraid of losing their job or if people are afraid of um, consequences, then they're less likely to own their mistakes. And when I as a leader immediately default to 
who do I need to blame for this? Um, then it probably reflects something about my leadership as well. So, so here's what we do. We don't bury our heads in the sand, but we have to investigate the cause. We have to figure out what happened, what caused us to get to the place we're at, but we have to re- re- um, resist the urge to figure out who to pin it on. Um, so we have to do our due diligence. We have to look and go, hey, we blew it. Man, this was a mess. How did we, how did we get here? And then how do we not get here ever again? What do we need to ch- shift or change or, or adjust? Um, <laughs> I put in here in my notes, uh, people know when leaders are being shifty, right? Come on. Haven't you, I mean, even people you don't know, you see press conferences on television and you hear language and you're like, nope, no, no. <laughs> you just know this guy's filthy, right? This guy is dirty. He is not a good leader. You can just hear it in their language. And if we can hear it with people we don't know, we can definitely hear it in people we do know and people we're around. And so this is where we've got, um, we as leaders have to be honest with our people, have to love our people well, and, um, and we have to own it as much as our people do. Um, and that's hard to do. So don't ask, uh, do not assess blame is the second thing. Third thing is this, seek wisdom from crisis veterans. Um, Pastor John Nuzo leads Victory Family Church in Cranberry, and he is one of my overseers. And he told me one time, um, and, and I actually have this in my notes, he said, learn from others who have made your ditch their expertise. So he said, when you find yourself in a ditch, figure out who has mastered your ditch and then make them your best friend. Um, And sometimes we don't always do that because we think, oh, this person has failed. But if they've failed the same way you have, you can learn something from them. If, if they're going through a similar experience or if they have gone through one that you have going through, it's really important for you to connect with them and to learn from them. And this is part of humility is saying, hey, we're stuck. I don't know how to get us out of this place we're in. We're dealing with this crisis and I don't know what to do. Um, Because the truth is, very rarely will you ever lead in a crisis that you have all the expertise you need. There's there's probably going to be a lack in your life somewhere if you're walking through a crisis. And so you need to find people who have been through that before. Um, Yeah, build relational equity and draw from it in crisis. Uh, The best time to make a friend is before you need a friend. And so too many times when we're in crisis, that's when we're like, I need somebody. But you needed them before the crisis, right? You needed to start building the relational equity so when the crisis comes, you can draw from that and go, okay, I need your help now. And, um, and so I would encourage you, make a friend before you need one. Um, start building relationships. If it's parenting, maybe your kids are great right now. They won't always be great. So build relationships with parents who have kids that are older than yours, who have been through crisis so that you can go, we're failures. We don't have any idea what we're doing. And they can go, no, you're not failures. Let me help you. This is where we were at when we were there. Um, if you're a department head, there might be a department head in your organization somewhere who's a little further down the line that you can say, hey, can I get coffee with you once a month? Can we just talk so I can pick your brain and talk about some of the things we're dealing with? Because when that crisis comes, you will need those relationships. So seek wisdom from crisis veterans. The fourth thing is this, don't act too quickly. And this is really hard for me because I want to fix stuff. Like, let's go, let's go, let's go. 
And, um, and, and it's important for us to be careful about moving too quickly. Um, I don't know if you remember when the attack on the World Trade Center happened. Um, if you watch documentaries about it uh, or read stories about it, um, whether you liked him or not, uh, George W. Bush was the president at the time and he was, he was in an elementary school um, reading with the students and he was told about what had happened and he didn't just immediately jump up and run out of the classroom. He sat and waited. Um, and, and some people were critical of that because he lacked action in that moment. But in hindsight, um, he and others would say that this actually allowed him space to think and it gave him some time to react. Uh, there's a, a book called Forged in Crisis. That's a really interesting book. Um, it's, it was written by a woman named uh, Nancy Cohn and Nancy looks at five different historical figures and the way that they dealt with crisis in their own life. But this is, uh, let me go back, here it is. Um, this is what she said. She said, in our own white hot moment, when so much of our time and attention is focused on instantaneous reaction, it seems almost inconceivable that nothing might be the best something that we can offer. So sometimes in our, in our effort to not seem passive, we go, okay, I, I've got to take action. But maybe in that moment, the best thing for you to do is go, let's wait and see what's going to happen. Let's just hit the pause button. Let's hold on. Let's not be too hasty about decision-making and just see what develops. Um, wait and see is often the best place to start when it comes to crisis. Uh, I would say the one exception to let's wait and see would be if uh, someone is in danger um, or someone is putting others in danger. Um, so we need, we need to take action immediately in those situations. But a lot of times the crisis is slowed, many times the crisis is slower developing than it feels. And it feels like it came on all of a sudden, but a lot of times the crisis we're dealing with have been developing over time. Um, and not to make light of this, and I'm sure Todd has too, but I've gotten phone calls from people, um, you know, 1030 on a weeknight, Mel, I need to talk to you right now. Can we meet with you right now? What's going on? My marriage is in crisis. It's like, okay, well, what's happening? Well, it's this and this and this. Okay. Why don't you come to the office tomorrow? I've got time at two o'clock. No, this can't wait till tomorrow. It needs to be right now. I'm like, this didn't happen today. It took 15 years for you to get here. It's not gonna hurt to have 12 more hours before we talk, right? Um, it's a slower developing problem than what they thought it was, but in the moment it felt like a crisis. And many times the crisis we're dealing with is the same way. It's slower developing than we feel like it is. And so it's not as urgent for us to do something immediately. We can wait and just say, okay, well, let's see what's gonna happen, what's gonna develop. So that's number four. Number five, don't act too quickly, but don't wait too long. <laughs> You're like, well, great. You're no help to me at all. Um, one of the things I've told our staff before, it's been a while since I've repeated it, but never let a little monster become a big monster. I think a lot of times um, you've got leaders like me that probably are act too quickly at times. And then there are a lot of leaders that act too slowly because we are conflict averse 
And so because we don't wanna have conflict, we go, well, maybe it'll work itself out. Maybe I won't have to have that conversation. Maybe if we just ignore it, it'll go away. Um, and the truth is that those little monsters that we ignore will ultimately grow up to become big monsters. And the, the little problem that we could have solved, the little crisis, if we would have just addressed it, now has become a big crisis that we have to address now. So, so we have to be careful about how we wait and waiting too long. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, I think the statute of limitations has passed and I can share stories uh, from Summit that are older. So I'm gonna go ahead and share, share one. Um, so back in 2015, um, I had a, a very good kids and youth pastor. I was grateful for the, the two young men that were part of our team. And um, we were about to announce to our congregation that we were building a $4 million youth and kids wing. And... Um, and literally, we were going to announce it on Sunday. And that week, I was having a conversation with my kid's pastor. And during the course of the conversation, I realized, I think he's quitting. And so I asked him, are you resigning? And he was like, well, man, well I'm thinking about it. It was like, oh, sweet mama. <laughs> like, okay. And I knew that he was close to the youth pastor. I said, is he thinking about resigning as well? And he was like, oh, I mean, you'll have to talk to him. I don't know. And I was like, oh my gosh. I'm about to announce to our church a $4 million addition. And at that time, our total income per year was about $1.3 million. So I'm, I'm about to announce a major addition to our church that focuses on kids and youth. And my kids and youth pastor are about to resign. And it was like, I, I don't want to announce this right now, right? Can you understand from a PR perspective how that could be challenging? Hey, I'm so excited about this kids and youth building, but we just don't have any kids or youth pastors. Like, oh, right? And um, so we talked about it. And we were like, well, when do we announce? And what do we say? And how do we say it? And at the end of the day, we were honest about, hey, they've made decisions to do, do this. And here's what we're doing, but it's going to be fine. And I am telling you, I, I don't lose sleep. My staff can tell you, like, I'm compartmentalized. And when I make a decision, like, all right, let's go. And I don't overthink it or think about it again normally. I lost sleep over that because I was so concerned about what people are going to say and what are they going to think and what's going to happen and we're going to lose momentum and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, it was a blip on the radar. It wasn't that big a deal, but it was a crisis to me. And so we had to figure out, hey, when do we announce this? How do we talk about this? And, um, and we kind of threaded the needle in hindsight on, we didn't wait too long, but we also, didn't, we also didn't do it immediately. We gave it just a little bit of time and then walked through it with the appropriate people and talked about it. And so it worked out. Um, but here's the thing, if, if you wait too long, it looks like you're being deceptive. Um, and the worst thing that can happen in a crisis is that you lose trust. So what you don't wanna do is lose trust in the midst of a crisis. You, have, you wanna be honest. But sometimes, quite frankly, as a leader, there's things you can't share with the people you're leading uh, for whatever reason. So you gotta be careful about, hey, I wanna share as much as I need to share to help people understand a situation, but I gotta be careful that I don't break confidences or that I don't make someone look bad, that I don't, you know, any of those kind of things. So um, <laughs> wait the appropriate amount of time is what I'm telling you. The last thing is this, be honest. Don't hide the truth, um, but address it directly. Own the loss as a leader. 
Um, whether it was your fault or not, own it. Um, I've never, I was trying to think before I made an emphatic statement. I don't think I've ever regretted owning something that I wasn't directly responsible for. As a leader, it's crazy how it helps build credibility because your people see, okay, you know what? I don't know if that was really their fault, but they were protecting and covering their team and it, it will buy you credibility. Um, even if you have to take a loss in the moment, ultimately it's better for you long-term to, to protect your team and to, to be honest about what's going on. Um, leaders should always take too much of the blame and not enough of the credit. Um, and, you know, I tell our church that all the time. I get too much of the credit around here because I'm the one that's just the most visible. But, um, but I also probably get too much of the blame because I'm the one who's most visible. And that's what I signed up for. That's why I've got the big office, because I'm the leader. And that's what we have to understand. If you're the leader of a department, if you're the leader of the family, if you're the leader of whatever it is, a company, you're gonna get too much credit more than you deserve, but you're gonna get too much blame too, more than you deserve. And that's just where we live as leaders. So be honest, um, own what you need to own. Don't try to shift or shield yourself or protect yourself. Uh, it'll work itself out. Um, like I said earlier, this ultimately breeds trust with your people, with the staff, stakeholders, leaders, volunteers, whatever it is. And um, it'll, help you with, it'll help you with clients too. If you can say, hey, we were dumb, we messed this up, but I promise we're gonna learn from this and we're gonna get better. Um, the people you're serving, the people that are buying your products, whatever it might be, they're gonna, they're gonna trust you more when you can do that. So before I get into uh, some just conversation, let me just share a couple resources with you. I mentioned one, Forged in Crisis by Nancy Cohen. Uh, another one is Crisis Leadership by Tim Johnson. Um, and his focus is uh, on organizations to develop crisis-ready culture. So basically, they are ready when crisis comes their way. And then um, there's another book called Chief Crisis Officer by James F. Haggerty. And in that book, um, he takes a, a tactical approach to crisis, and he classifies crisis by their speed. And this is kind of interesting the way he does it. He talks about exploding crisis versus unfolding crisis. Uh, and he suggests that companies take preemptive steps and talks about what to do and how to do that. And so it's an interesting read as well. If you're interested, you can pick those up on Amazon. Um, so let's open it up. Let's talk. And again, this is not just big, major, company-wide, worldwide crisis. This might just be a personal crisis. How do I lead my family through this? Whatever it might be. So let's open it up and let's just talk. Questions or comments? You guys have been around, you know this. If you don't, Michael will, so. What kind of daily or weekly routines do you keep which have been most beneficial to you in the midst of crisis? Uh, <laughs> well, here's the thing. In crisis, it's easy to mess up your normal routines. Um, and so I think whatever your normal routines are, it's probably good if you can, if you can continue to observe those as much as possible. Um, because the more of those you can keep control of, the easier it will be for you to manage that crisis. Um, so I would say that in a general way. Me personally, I mean, I'm the pastor, so it's gonna sound cliche to say, um, you know, leaning into my time with God, you know, prayer and devotion, meditation, those kind of things. 
But um, the ironic part is, in crisis, those are the things we retreat from. But in crisis, that's when we need those things the most. And so it's easy to get out of those habits when crisis comes our way, which is, it's, it's, it doesn't make sense at all. Um, but I think everybody in this room and people watching online probably have experienced that same thing, that like something bad happens and then our routine goes out the window. Like, hey, we're eating and working out and now we're just eating gallons of ice cream or, you know what I mean? Like, because crisis has come and life shifts and now forget it and... So I think whatever your, your habits and routines have been, if you've had good, healthy routines and habits, try to maintain those. But that's a great question. Anybody else have any feedback on that or thoughts on that? What habits or routines that you have established that are helpful during crisis? Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Michael. I, I wanna make sure anybody watching or listening can hear that. Say that again. I said a good support team. Yeah. When I was pastoring full time, um, I had a intercessory prayer group that I met with weekly. Absolutely. And I had a couple crises that happened early Sunday morning um, within the family, mm -hmm. and literally walked in the midst of the basement and said, "I need you guys to pray over me this morning because mm -hmm. I don't have it together." Yeah. And uh, and that that meant all the the difference in the world. Yeah. When I couldn't see straight because of emotion. Yeah. Yeah, and that goes back to, you know, you're affirming what I said earlier about make a friend before you need it, you know. Um, yeah, it's hard to anticipate what ditches you're going to end up in, but that's where building relationships with people that have been in lots of different ditches is helpful. Um, diversify your, your ditch friends. There you go. It's the name of my upcoming book, so... <laughs> What else? How do you balance humility with the security that comes from the appearance of certainty in the midst of crisis? It's easy for me because I'm so good at it. <laughs> Sorry. That was a joke. Humility and... Um, I don't know. That's kind of a weird place because the, the truth is people want in crisis... They want to follow somebody who, um, who's confident, right? Nobody wants to follow somebody who's like, I got no idea what we're doing. We're going to throw some stuff out and see if it works and who knows. And like most of us don't want to follow that person, especially in a crisis. And so it's important for us. You know, I was talking to a pastor this last week and he was talking to me about some of the things they were wanting to do. And I said, man, if I was you and these are some things you're going to do, I would say, hey, I feel good about this but we're just trying this because it kind of leaves the door open for being able to say, well, it didn't work. So we're not gonna do that anymore. So I think it's important for us to, to try not to make emphatic statements like, this is the way we're gonna do it from now on because it's probably not. And then when you have to make the change, it's undermined your credibility. And so I think it's important to be confident and, and humble at the same time. Say, hey, this is what I believe is right for us as a family or as an organization or whatever it is, but we've also got some flexibility and things are going to change. And when things change, we're going to try to adjust. And, and so, and really more than having a plan like mastered, I think it's important for people because what they're really after in crisis, I think people want to know, am I safe? Um, and so if you can reassure them and say, 
hey, I'm gonna take care of us. I don't know exactly what it's gonna look like. I don't know how this is gonna turn out, but I'm gonna do my very best to take care of this organization, take care of this family, whatever it is. Um, so I think that's probably the key to balancing the, those two things, humility and, because if you really focus on taking care of people, then it makes it easy. Because um, they're, they're less concerned about your 21 point plan than they are about, hey, do you, are you gonna take care of us? Am I gonna have a job six months from now? You know, and so I think if we can reassure people that it, then we can marry those things. So that's a great question. What else? I'd love to hear your thoughts. I know some of you guys have led in crisis and how do you manage humility and confidence at the same time? Go ahead. So I'm not quite sure how to word it, but what types of recommendations or in your favorite word, guardrails, <laughs> could we establish for a friend or close family member who is going through a crisis who just can't seem to get themselves out of the, the circling drain, so to speak, that no matter what you tell them, they're just totally against it. You know, like they're kind of like the, the Eeyore yeah. where, oh, woe is me. And, you know. I mean, the easy answer is there's nothing you can do. I mean, if, um, if they're unwilling, there's really nothing you can do. Um, whether it's a, a friend or an organization or a leader, whatever it is, if that's their mindset and that's their direction, then you can encourage them and you can, if you've got permission to challenge them, you can. But, um, yeah, how do you walk in partnership with them if they're unwilling to be in partnership, right? Like, you can't be in agreement if they're not in agreement. So, hey, you can get through this. No, I can't. Okay, well, we're at an impasse then, right? Um, and so, I, there's not much you can do. Um, Sorry, Mike. Yeah, go ahead. Do you ever feel like that could be someone that you ultimately would end up having to cut out of your life just because? Yeah. I mean, yes, potentially. Um, we just had that would... at FCA on Wednesday night. Someone asked, um, at what point do you quit praying for or trying to lead someone to Christ? And my immediate thought was when they're walking with Christ. But yeah. um, Scott ended up saying that, you know, some of the things was if that person is leading you further away more so than, yeah, you know, conforming. Yeah, and I think there's a big difference between praying for someone and allowing them to influence you. And even, like, if you were in an organization and there's someone who has a, a, a chronically um, negative attitude, behavior, they were toxic, um, it is one thing to try to influence them, but it's another thing entirely to let them influence you. And so I would say, yeah, the moment that they are influencing you, that probably needs to shift. I used to have a lot of teenagers, uh, like when I was a youth pastor, who would say things like, well, Jesus would go to parties. And it was like, yeah, but Jesus was the son of God. And you're wanting to go to parties because you want to get drunk as a 14-year-old, right? Like, those are two different things, my man. And, uh, and it's like, you're going to parties because you want what they've got, not because what you, you want to bring them something new. And, and so I think it's easy for us to be like, to, to uh, misjudge our influence 
and misjudge other people's influence on us. And so I think we just got to be aware of that. Um, but I would love to open it up because this is a broader topic for sure. And let's, let me see if we can distill this back down to the original question. Uh, Michael, I don't know if you can help me with this. Or uh, Marie, can you restate what your original question was for the group? What types of recommendations or guardrails can you help someone in a crisis establish to potentially see the yeah, light at the end of the to get them out of their crisis. Yeah. Okay. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Todd, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm putting you on the spot now. I'm like, dang, why did I sit in the front? Oh, and now I even get the mic. So that's awesome. Um, I really didn't have a thought. Uh, <laughs> now you have to fabricate Now one. I have to have one. Well, I would, I would say... Anytime you can help people reframe the situation, see it from a different angle, see it from a different light, uh, help them to understand the perspective of somebody who's on the outside. Because sometimes we're just, we're so caught up in the middle of it, you know, that we can't see the forest for the trees, that whole kind of idea. And so if you can help them to shift their perspective. You can help them to reframe it, help them to see the positive aspect of something like what, what might they learn from this? What might they gain from this? What, you know, especially if they're a believer, you can say, what is it that God might be doing in you in the midst of this crisis? What is it that God's revealing about himself to you in the middle of this? How can we see this from a different angle? And that can often be the thing that will just trigger a different train of thought or a different viewpoint in somebody's perspective and help them to see a way out. This is terribly morbid. All I could think was as you were saying that is, oh, I'm sorry you've got cancer. At least you'll see Jesus sooner. It's like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, I mean, I think you're right, but gosh, that's hard. Cause even when you do that, sometimes people are, um, oh, uh, they'll accuse you of, of, downplaying their pain or their situation or minimizing or... Yeah, and you don't want to default to platitudes. Right. You don't do the whole, everything happens for a reason. Yeah. And, sorry, I'll, I'll say that again. You don't want to default to platitudes or devolve into platitudes for sure, yeah. you know, because that's not helpful. Uh, you want them to be able to see substantive things, yeah. right? So like... To, to go with your example of someone who has cancer. So, you know, maybe they do have a limited amount of time left. Mm -hmm. So, but what opportunities do you have in this time that you might not have taken advantage of yeah. before, right? And then it can help them to see things in a different light. It doesn't mean the circumstances changed, but often it is our perspective that, can change how we respond in crisis. This is, and this is like gangster. Jesus, oh gosh, I shouldn't say it this way. Jesus was gangster, right? Like he was. And so Jesus asked a question one time and he said, um, he asked somebody who was lame, do you, do you wanna be better? Which is, sounds like the stupidest question ever, right? Like, of course, but I think it's a real question. Sometimes people don't wanna be better. They're like, I'm really, I'm really happy in my crisis. I'm really happy in my pain. Like, this is my identity. This is who I am. And especially, maybe you don't ask the question, but that maybe that's a question we ask ourselves. Do they, do they actually want to be better? Because if they don't, then it's like, 
all right, I love you, but we can't walk together. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, we got, we got spiritual. We were just talking about crisis. Marie took us there. Thanks, Marie. My, my next book that's coming out is Jesus is Gangster. Something I just want to add, if um, I'm understanding your question correctly, is one guardrail you can put up is just support. Mm-hmm. You know, personally, I w- my family just went through a crisis where my yeah. wife had breast cancer, and she came to peace with it because she has support from so many, obviously the church, but friends and people within my org- work organization that are on the other side of the country that don't even know her. Yeah. Um, reached out to her just from support where I've had the same case in business where oil field takes a turn and we have to do layoffs and I stress about it all week, but there's always your group that support you and help you through that period of making the right decision. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Any other thoughts on that? Any other ways you can assist or come alongside somebody who's walking through crisis? Good good question. Good feedback, guys. What else we got? What preemptive steps can you take to prevent people from becoming demoralized because of a crisis? Um, I'll open it up to you guys. I have a thought, but I'll open it up to you guys. What are some preemptive steps we can take to keep our teams from becoming demoralized when crisis inevitably comes? Not even just to the team, but maybe to them as an individual. What are some things we can do? Manage expectations. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good one. Manage expectations. Any other thoughts? My first thought, honestly, you, you go ahead. If you, yeah, if you got something, go ahead, Todd. I think uh, reinforce identity. And what mm-hmm. I mean by that is like help people to understand that we're not defined by a crisis, yeah. no matter how personal it may feel, no matter how uh, threatened our sense of identity might be, mm-hmm. that that crisis does not define our identity, and mm-hmm. that. It will pass. Yeah, right? yeah. You, we talked about that a little on the Back Forty podcast yesterday when you were talking about happiness and happenstance, and yeah, that was good. I think another thing that you can do is you can be very careful to memorialize the times which you successfully navigated previous crises. Uh huh. Because if you forget, then yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's really good for your team to go, "Hey, we've been through this before," and you know. Like, hey, we've been through tough times. Hey, we've been through recessions. We've been, whatever it might be. But, I mean, the thing I was going to say is I'm, I'm a big believer in healthy culture. And, um, and I think a he- healthy culture is, um, it's a firewall against crisis many times because, um, you know, that crisis will get so far and you might feel the heat from it, but you still have a, a level of safety because it's like, okay, we're going to be all right, you know, because you've created healthy expectations. You have uh, helped people understand. I love, I value you more than just your role as a, as a cog in this wheel, right? You're not just a number. You are a person that we value, you know, all those things. When you build the right culture and a healthy culture, 
Um, I think that is probably the most important thing we can do to protect our teams and our organizations and, you know, before crisis comes. That would probably be the first thing I would think. And I would also say to that, because um, I've worked in big corporate settings where the only time you get called into an office is yeah. for something bad. Yeah. And then I've worked for small family-owned businesses where you get called into the office to be praised mm-hmm. or, better yet, praise in public, you know, yeah. consult in private. So I would say communication is huge, mm-hmm. 100%. And then, you know, just making sure that it doesn't feel like a punishment to be talked to. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. I've told you guys before, that's one of the reasons Southwest Airlines is getting a beating right now, right? And, um, but that's one of the things I like about Southwest. If you're sitting on their flight, they communicate well to you. They're going to tell you like exactly what's going on and you know how long the delay is going to be, and I appreciate that. Um, apparently, they don't communicate as well when they cancel your flight after you're at the airport, but that's for another day. Good news is, if you want to fly cheap, you can get some cheap flights on um, Southwest Airlines right now. So they're trying to rehab their image. What else? We got a few more minutes. Anybody else have thoughts or questions or anything we talked about? What are some of the most destructive assumptions a person can hold when entering a crisis? Huh, that's a great question. Most destructive assumptions. Hmm. Gosh, I can think of a bunch, honestly. Some of them are contradictory too. <laughs> like, um, Just holding on to negativity. Yeah. If you automatically assume in the crisis that it's going to be bad. Yeah. You're not going to have a positive outcome. Yeah. We're not going to make it. Um, yeah. The ship is going down. Like that, that's probably the worst one. Like we're not going to make it through this. Absolutely. And that's why I was saying, I've got all these thoughts, but they're contradictory. Right. Um, because, okay. Think about it in a marriage. If a marriage is in crisis and somebody assumes we're never going to make it through. They're right. They're never going to make it through. Um, but if somebody assumes in a crisis and marriage in crisis, uh, we're going to be fine. We don't need to do anything about it. It's like, it's not true. Like that's, that's an equally destructive assumption, right? So I think <laughs> there is no limit to the destructive assumptions that are out there probably. A, a really good one, a really good assumption to not have when entering a crisis is this is not my fault. Yeah. Because yeah. I think that your degree to be able to make change um, is in relationship to how much responsibility, like Gil talked mm-hmm. about this during our all staff meeting, he talked about taking ownership of things that are indirectly your responsibility because at the least what you're able to do is show the people that you work with that even when things aren't your fault, Mm-hmm. you're still able to provide a solution, which makes everyone else around you feel safer. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I've been part of organizations where the first response to crisis was, it's not my fault. Um, because it was, it was an unhealthy culture. It was, I've got to cover my rear. I've got to make sure I don't get the blame. Um, but the truth is, in a healthy culture, no matter where you're at on the org chart, 
there's probably something that you can do to affect some sort of change to make that crisis a little less painful next time, no matter how far you might be removed from it. And so, like, like you said, if we can all go, okay, maybe it wasn't my fault directly, but what could I have done to made, make this crisis not so painful or make this issue not so destructive? Or, you know, what is the part that I've played in this directly or indirectly and how can we make it better? Um, so yeah, I think assuming that uh, it's not my fault, so I, don't, I bear no responsibility is very destructive for sure. That's a good, good one. And again, that's true in marriage. It's true in relationships. It's true in, yeah, anywhere we might in, encounter crisis. Anybody else? Thoughts on that? Destructive assumptions? That's my third book that's coming out. <laughs> John, did you have something? You just stretching your hand. Oh, okay. I've also got a heavy metal album coming out. I'll tell you about sometime. <laughs> Oh goodness! We, we were we were doing our podcast on Tuesday, and and Michael um, brought up a hypothetical about about this is not going to make any sense in this context about raccoons. He said raccoons don't have death camps, and I was like, "It's my new heavy metal band, Raccoon Death Camp." Like, come on, sounds good. Album drop drops next week, so. So, uh, next question. We got four minutes left, so. How do you determine whether a person is trying to take advantage of you in the midst of crisis? That's a good one. Thoughts on that? How do you spot somebody who's being an opportunist in crisis? Thanks, John. Employees of mine um, who have a reputation of throwing people under the bus mm -hmm. at every opportunity. Yeah. That. But um, I think uh, going back and forth, uh, thinking about um, what you had said about uh, do not access blame in the middle of the crisis, you have to have some sort of medium where you hold your team accountable. So how do you balance that between making blame and, and making your team accountable? Um, well, Marie said you praise publicly and you correct privately. I think that's part of it. So it's not that you don't correct, but you correct in a healthy way. Um, you do hold people responsible, but it's not about shaming them. And that's when, when we're talking about ass assessing blame, a lot of times that's what we're talking about so that everybody knows it was John's fault who did that. Right. And it's in a healthy corrective culture. It's less about assessing who's to blame and more about going, okay, how do we correct the behaviors that led us to this place? Uh, and it's more restorative than assessing blame. So I think that's a long way to around the mount to answer that question. But I think it comes back to um, how you correct when you assess the blame to some degree. And it's about what your motivation is in assessing the blame. Is it about giving me cover so I can go, it wasn't my fault, it was John's fault, mm -hmm. shareholders. Mm -hmm. We can fire this guy because, you know, Todd. Thanks, Joe. Uh, I think blame is punitive and correction is restorative. Yeah. And so I think that's the difference. 
and your the people that you lead will will understand the difference like they'll they'll see that difference in you like if you're if you're trying to cast blame and make sure that somebody gets punished right somebody you know takes you know I need the, my pound of flesh from somebody exactly yeah, yeah. then then they'll know that and and Mel mentioned earlier that creates a, a, a culture of fear that creates a culture of where people aren't honest and can't be transparent with you but if people understand that even when you're assessing responsibility right when there's correction that's needed that it's restorative so that you can get better so that you mm-hmm. can improve uh you're not just looking to you know for you know for heads to roll i think that that differentiates those two things to me at least yeah i think that's good I got one really quick that will help with that. Like, I, I think yep. I know how to spot these people, or at yep. least this is one metric you can use. If you pay attention to the way they react when you tell them good news about yourself, that can tell you a little bit about a person. And also pay attention to the way they react when you tell them bad news about yourself. Because if they are kind of more attentive and happier, <laughs> like, with tell the bad me more news, about that. Right. So and you, if they're sort of failed? dismissive, yeah. Oh, go on. Don't tell me more. <laughs> Yeah, I think there's something to that. It sounds weird, but if you really focus in and you pay attention to people around you, you'll start to see that yeah. a little more often than you probably would like. But Yeah. Yeah, and, and honestly, I mean, your culture determines that to some degree, but like that comes back to our own hearts. And like even for me, when I see another church doing well, there's a, a tiny part of me that I have to put to death that is like, oh, Right. <laughs> And it's like, especially in church, we're the kingdom. Like, we're one church, right? And so, like, that's something I have to do and go, no, no, no. I'm going to clap for them. I'm going to cheer them on privately and publicly so that my heart is conditioned to do that. And so, as believers in a workplace, even if you're in a in an unhealthy culture, um, I would encourage you, be the first clappers for the people around you. When they do well, condition your own heart to say, hey, this might not change any of them, but it's going to change me. And I'm going to change the culture of my heart, at least, even if I can't implement that change in, in everybody else. So that's good. That's probably a good place for us to stop tonight. It's 8.01. I'm sorry we went a minute over. Let me pray for you, and we will close out. God, thank you so much. Uh, Lord, thank you that you're not the author of crisis in our lives, but when crisis comes, we know that you're gonna be there to walk us through it. So God, I pray for every person that's here, every person that's watching online, every person that's listening to this podcast. I pray that as they are navigating crisis, God, they're gonna do it well. They're gonna do it in a way that brings you glory. I pray that uh, they're gonna lean on you, that God, they are gonna build friends and build those relationships before they need them, that they're gonna do their best to honor you, that they're gonna build a healthy culture in their home, in their workplaces, so that when crisis inevitably comes, they're gonna weather it well. So God, I, I pray that we would see we're not immune from crisis, um, but God, we can, we can weather those storms if we have you by us and walking with us. So God, I pray that that would be, um, that would be our, our highest endeavor. And I pray that you be glorified through it. Bless uh, us the rest of this evening and the rest of this week. And I pray that um, you be glorified through our work, through our relationships, through our families. In Christ's name, amen. Guys, thanks for joining us. If uh, this is helpful, sign-in sheet. Oh yeah, if you didn't sign in, um, sign-in sheet's right up here. Feel free to get signed in. And then Vanessa Zuro will send out some notes tomorrow. So thank you guys. If this was helpful, make sure you share it with somebody on social media, on Uh, podcasts, whatever it might be. And uh, let's make sure we're helping people get better. 
All right, God bless you guys. Have a wonderful night. Oh yeah, by the way, if there are people at your table you don't know, take a minute and introduce yourself to the other people at your table and uh, just get their names and find out a little bit about them before you guys go tonight. So thank you guys. I love you. Hope you guys have an awesome night. If you enjoy this content, please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also contact us at summitpodcast.church. Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to Summit Podcasts, and we will see you in the next episode.